0: Welcome to another episode of Carous on Crime. I'm your host, Beth Caris. Carison on Crime is a place to explore criminal justice issues and cases in the news. I welcome your feedback, your questions and ideas. Post them in the forum on KarisOnCrime.com if you're a member or on social media. My Twitter handles are at Beth Caris and at Karis on Crime. My Facebook page is my name, Beth Caris. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by a renowned forensic scientist, Paulette Sutton, who's based in Tennessee. Paulette is a bloodstain pattern expert whom I met when we sat near each other in the public gallery at a Knoxville, Tennessee trial in 2009. It was a trial of Rainella Dossett Leith. Now, I've spoken about her on the site. She was accused and then convicted of murdering her husband, David Leith. She was in prison for some time, but only recently her conviction was overturned. She's out and facing a new trial. But... I'm digressing here. Let's get back to Paulette Sutton. She is the co-author of a textbook, Principles of Bloodstain Pattern Analysis. She's a professor at the University of Tennessee teaching clinical laboratory science and and forensics, and she was assistant director of forensic services at the University of Tennessee. Now, Paulette was a a member of the crime scene team also in Shelby County, Tennessee, which is where Memphis is. She's been qualified as an expert witness in bloodstain pattern analysis in courts in many states and in federal courts. She lectures extensively on bloodstain pattern analysis and teaches basic and advanced courses in it. So of course, I am so honored to have Paulette Sutton spend some time today discussing her profession. Welcome Paulette. Hi, Beth, how are you today? I'm great. So I want to begin by asking you basic questions similar to what you get from whoever's calling you to the stand, whether it's the prosecution or defense, when you're asked to sort of lay a foundation for your expertise. So All right. what, first tell everybody, what is bloodstain pattern analysis?
1: Bloodstain pattern analysis is the analytical observation of the bloodstain patterns that we might see at a crime scene or on an item of evidence, looking at those patterns and the characteristics that we're able to observe from those patterns, and then matching those back to known characteristics from known activity. In other words, we're looking at the characteristics, and, and we've already done our legwork. We, we know what characteristics can be created by different kinds of activity.
0: So, what types of blood stains are there?
1: Well, there are plain old transfer stains, blood being transferred from one object to an unstained object. Then there's the reverse, blood being removed from an object that has a blood stain. And on that, we're looking at the, the mechanics of the removal itself and any characteristics we might be able to pick up about what the offending object is. Uh, example, does it look like fingers remove the blood? Does it look like cloth removes the blood? And then we're going to look at uh, things like uh, anything that can tell us how long the blood might have been there before it was disturbed. And in that, we're looking at basic drying time. Uh, characteristics of that blood stain. Then from transfer stains, uh, we would go up into uh, stains that are created as a result of an activity. And most notably, we talk about stains that are created from beatings, stabbings, gunshots, explosions, mechanical accidents, uh, violent events.
0: So when you're looking at a blood stain, are you... (laughs) Are they often combined with something besides just blood, or can you, or, or are they just, or is it just blood? No,
1: you mean is the stain itself combined? Yeah, with it? yeah. Well, it it could be. It, it certainly could be, and that's and that's one of the characteristics that we'll look at. Is uh, has this stain been altered? Uh, it can be altered. <clears throat> I'm sorry. It can be altered. Uh, Because of intermixing with a foreign uh, substance, it could be altered because uh, the blood itself is undergoing changes, either a biological change such as clotting or uh, it's being intermixed with uh, maybe stomach acid, something like that. Uh, Then we have animal activity and insect activity that can also alter blood. So that's one of the characteristics. Basically, we look at the size of the stain, the shape of the stain, the characteristics of the stain, and and that's where I'm talking about uh, the alteration. uh, What does the stain itself look like?
0: Now, in the trials I've covered over the years, you know, experts have been on the stand talking about velocity, velocity, uh, (laughs) high-velocity stain, and and spatters, and and it's spatter, not splatter. No L, that right? Is it's it's spatter. no L, right? No okay. L. So there's drops, and there's there's spatter, there's smears, there is. And these are maybe not the scientific terms, but can you describe like the the different types of stains and what you can tell from them? Like a tiny, tiny little mist-like stain means what?
1: That means that a lot of
0: energy has been applied to break
1: that blood uh uh bolus or or blood volume into smaller drops. And and what we're doing in order to make that statement is we're we're talking about the physics of liquids. Uh surface tension wants to hold that liquid together. So in order for it to end up on a surface as a smaller drop there has to be a good bit of energy added into this system to overcome its surface tension. And with the small, small drops, we are looking at things like gunshots. And and when we used to use the term high-velocity impact, uh, usually that was equated with a gunshot. Explorated blood blood that is being blown out of a mouth or a nose or even a chest wound can create these very small stains as well. So it's not just an explosion. It's not just a gunshot. It can also be something that is happening to the body because of the injury. That can create the very small stains. The other thing that can create very small stains and can replicate a gunshot spatter, is uh, fly activity. Uh, When flies come in and they feed on the blood, they will go and regurgitate it onto another surface. And they can make it look just like uh, a very small blood stain when they do that.
0: Holy Toledo. So if a body is... um... Not discovered right away, for example, and um, let's just say it's a body, or, you know, blood, yes. I, I guess yeah. it's a body. All right. And so there's there's fly activity. Or do flies start buzzing around immediately, or is it after you know, a certain number of hours? Dr. Doctor Bill Bash at the at the body farm in Knoxville, one of his graduate students uh,
1: did a study on that, Beth. And what they did is they, they left blood over at the body farm. And then they, they came back to the anthropology office, which, by the way, being a Tennessee fan, is just downstairs at the stadium. And they released their flies, but not before they tagged them. And they tagged them by painting their little abdomens orange. So we could tell that these are, in fact, the flies that they released over at the stadium. And if, if memory serves me correctly, it was... Within about fifteen minutes that those flies made it from the stadium over to the body farm to feed on that blood. Wow, yeah, they are they are tremendous uh honing uh, animals. they they find that blood and and I've been to very fresh crime scenes myself that the flies are are buzzing about. And, and they're there to feed.
0: So I've never, I've never thought about this. So that in preserving a crime scene, you always hear about the first officers on the scene and I preserve the crime scene. Well, you need, if you got a body outside, you need to somehow protect flies from getting at it.
1: Well, it's not just outside; it's inside as well. And uh, you know, it, it would be nice to protect it from the flies, but that's going to be pretty tough. I mean, hey, uh, go have a picnic lunch and see how long it takes for the flies Correct. to show up.
0: So, so you say that flies um, can actually deposit a little bit of the blood of, you know, somebody's de- de- a deceased and make yes. it look like the like pattern of a gunshot wound. Yes. Yes. Does that confuse, could that confuse the interpretation of a scene? Sure. Sure. Have you ever seen if, that happen?
1: If, if you try to interpret the scene based on, solely on the size of the stain, which is, is the way we historically did this, but now we know that we have to take a lot of other variables into account to make an interpretation. Uh, I can look at the size of the stain and I know, okay, we're, we're talking about very small stains here. A, a millimeter or less in diameter are these stains. Uh, The next thing I'm going to look at is is, uh, what what are their shapes. And with any of these, they're probably going to be almost entirely round. Then I'm going to look at the characteristics. I'm going to look at uh, are these fly specks tend to be very dark in appearance. They might not be, though, but they tend to be. Uh, And they tend to have a color variation within a pattern. Uh, some of them dark, some of them light, some of them kind of in the middle.
0: What and does that tell it, you? What does the color variation tell you?
1: That, the color variation makes me lean towards fly stick, fly activity, or animal activity, insect mm-hmm, activity. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to look at the distribution of that pattern. How is it distributed overall at the crime scene? And in my opinion, that's one of the most important characteristics that we look at is the overall distribution of these spatters, these small stains. Uh, fly specks tend to be just sort of willy-nilly. They're everywhere. Or, or they, they congregate towards a source of light. Uh, that's, that's a clue that we're looking at insect activity. If my victim's way over here, and I've only got spatter over there. My victim had to get from here to there somehow. Mm-hmm. So I better be seeing something on the floor, on the walls, between these two surfaces, or I have a disconnect. Well, you—I have a disconnect.
0: You said that um, you, you it, in the earlier days of blood stain pattern analysis, you, you just looked at the size of the stain, and but that's changed over time. Like, what? what ha- how have you seen this? Area of forensics develop over the years because you've been involved in it for a lot of number of years, right? And I'm and I'm only thirty nine,
1: right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so no, you know when when we started many many years ago, uh, size of the stain was considered uh, to be the deciding characteristic. Uh, we looked at stains that were greater than 3 millimeters in diameter, or 3 millimeters or more, and said they, those are passive stains. It's just a blood drop onto a surface, something like that. Uh, then 3 millimeters or maybe down to 1 is, is in that realm of a beating or a stabbing. And the reason we put those two together is, A beating is obvious. You're striking someone with another surface. Uh, But a stabbing, you're doing the same thing. Uh, There's just a knife in between. The knife opens up the body and gets blood on the surface, and it's the the impact or the force of the subsequent stabs that break the surface tension of the blood and cause it to, to subdivide and make smaller stains. So... That's uh, why those are in the same category, and then we talked about what you call high velocity impact spatter, and that, and we call the others medium velocity impact. Uh, high velocity is a force a hundred feet per second or more impacts this bloody source, and and by saying that I'm, I'm not saying it has to strike the blood directly it can strike the body that is bloody okay and that caused the blood to subdivide and make much smaller stains a millimeter or less and we call that gunshots explosions mechanical accidents we got to throw in their golf clubs uh people can swing golf clubs at 100 feet per second or more Wow. Uh, so, even though it sounds kind of like a beating, it, it's it's object dependent or weapon dependent. and we we made those determinations as to what created this stain based solely on the size of the stain, as the field grew and and we studied and we learned more, which is less basic, that's what a science is. We take a basis and we build upon that basis, right. And by building on that basis, we now know that you can't just look at the size of the stain. You have to look at all of these other characteristics. You have to look at the shape. You have to look at the distribution. You have to look at the characteristics of the blood itself. Uh, so that's why we have gone away from those terms, even though we still accept the validity of these categories. What we're saying is you can't get to that conclusion without thoroughly studying all of the attributes that could have created that state.
0: So when you reach a conclusion, what are you concluding? What are you saying? Like, What, what can you offer about a crime scene?
1: What I can do about a crime
0: scene is, is
1: reconstruct uh, activities that occurred within that scene. Uh, little snippets of what happened within that scene. And another thing that we haven't talked a lot about is sometimes I can sequence things that happened within a crime scene. Uh, and that, that may be something that comes out in court. It, it may simply be something that helps the investigator when they interrogate someone it's uh, it's it's a piece of information that the investigator knows about a crime scene and the perpetrator knows about a crime scene but nobody else knows
0: when you say sequencing you can say you know there was a stabbing here and a shot over here or there was a stab wound here and then I don't know what do you what do you...
1: Uh, and, and then and then you move to the tape or uh, uh, You drug the body across this rug, and then you rolled the rug up. Or uh, that movement of of objects changes in the crime scene itself.
0: Uh, Are you looking at an autopsy report to help you understand, or are you strictly looking at the scene, nothing else?
1: I I look at the autopsy report
0: Mm -hmm.
1: because I want to know the kinds of injuries this body has sustained. Mm-hmm. And that was one thing I was fortunate enough uh, at the university was I, I worked hand-in-hand hand with the pathologist, the forensic pathologists, that were examining uh, the bodies of the decedent. And many times I would call them from a crime scene or they would call me at a crime scene. Uh, and working together, we could best determine the cause of death.
0: And manner? Or just cause? Yes, Yes, and manner. Okay, so I would imagine that there have been some tough cases where you can't tell if somebody's cleaning their gun and accidentally (laughs) shot themselves or staged or or actually committed suicide and made it look like they were cleaning their gun. So that, you know, maybe to spare a family, I don't know. Um, So accident versus suicide or... um, Suicide versus homicide. That was an—that was the issue for the jury in the Phil Spector case that I covered in Los Angeles. Okay, and that was yeah. an intraoral gunshot wound. Phil Spector right. put a gun in her mouth, right. but he says she she killed herself. And, oh, my God, you know, the gunshot wound expert, Vince DeMaio, he was on the stand for the defense. And Michael Bodden was on the stand for the defense. And uh, Werner Spitz, I mean, they locked them all up right away. Robert Shapiro did as soon as Spectre got arrested, he locked them all up so they weren't available to the prosecution, and they all were saying that you know this was a uh, suicide, or they offered evidence to further it was a suicide, but the jury didn't buy it.
1: Right, right. Well, she she also had something else in in her wound that changed things a little bit as far as the bloodstains were concerned, and that was the intraoral gunshot wound. Led to a severe laceration of her tongue, right? Uh, which is which is very common, it is, and it's because basically uh, an explosion has occurred inside of your mouth, and when the tongue lacerates, it bleeds extensively.
0: It. it I couldn't hear that part. What? Uh, when your tongue is lacerated, it will bleed extensively. I see. So, one of the things the defense said in support of their position that this was a suicide was that Phil Spector's white dinner jacket he was wearing had only a mist like stain, and that if he had been standing six feet or less in front of her, two or three feet away, which is what the prosecution said, he would have been covered in blood. But there's no like there's no way to test what the blood spatter and brain spattering are like when you stand three feet from someone, put a gun in their mouth, and pull the trigger.
1: Well, you know, you can you can take that same set of circumstances, Beth, and I, I know of cases where we have had suicides that put a gun in their mouth and they lacerated their tongue. And they cre- created a tremendous amount of spatter uh, that exited from their mouth onto their hands onto the gun.
0: What kind of gun? I know of, what kind of gun.
1: Uh, the one I'm thinking of was a thirty eight.
0: Oh, okay, small like this one was.
1: Exactly, but then I know of cases uh, very similar where they don't create a lot of spatter, and that's that's part of the conundrum here is, is it, it may be case specific with gunshots uh, we we can we can create it in a laboratory and we can make spatter go forward and spatter come backwards towards the shooter but in a real well in a real world setting we don't always get back spatter or the spatter that comes back towards the shooter so it's kind of case dependent, and I and I think that's uh, part of the problem there was with Specter. Is okay. We know that it can create spatter coming out of a mouth like that. We know she's going to be pouring blood out of her mouth. Yeah. Because of that lacerated tongue, we know it can create spatter coming out. Very small mist coming out from her mouth.
0: Did it? There was, that, right? There was that, a little bit. I'm sorry, you were posing a rhetorical what? question. I thought you were asking me to answer. Sorry. No, no,
1: I, I, no, I wasn't. Oh, okay, you, yeah, there was I, a little bit,
0: just a little bit of, uh, but that, you know, it pooled in her mouth, and uh, it is believed that her, her head fell to the, to, the, to the right, and then Specter wiped her mouth with a wet rag because he didn't know whether she was dead or not, and moved her head to the. I mean, from the left to the right, and then or or, le- or right to left—I can't remember—but moved her head, turned her head, and then a lot of stuff came out of her mouth. And 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 then when they moved her body, a lot more just tissue and blood came out of her mouth, and it kind of soaked the sleeve of her jacket in transporting her. Also, so it was like pooling inside her head. There was no exit wound. Yeah, and that's
1: and that typically creates more back spatter when there's not an exit wound. Uh, And and we believe that one reason is there's no release for that pressure, that internal pressure.
0: So the defense had an argument, they had a decent argument to make then. Yeah, yeah. That he wasn't standing near her. Right. Wow, the jury didn't buy it. But the first jury, which is the trial I covered, the second jury, he got convicted. The first jury was ten to two for ten to two for conviction, and I had thought that the jury foreman, who who sort of who was the holdout, and he got one person to go along with him, had wanted a psychological autopsy that there wasn't enough for him because there was some evidence that the deceased had uh, she was kind of down down for for a while. She had broken her wrist, and she's an actress, and she couldn't work and she was starting to work again, but she was a hostess in a VIP lounge of a nightclub, and it was, she, she thought, a little bit demeaning because she was pulling out the chairs and seating people like she used to work with. And, you know, but she was happy to be sure. working again, and that's at the time of her life when she died. So they're saying that she was despondent and, you know, could have killed herself. Um But I had thought, and I just talked to the prosecutor, Alan Jackson, the other day. He's now a defense attorney. He couldn't recall this, so I guess I might be wrong, that that holdout juror had wanted a psychological autopsy. He wanted to know more about her state of mind, even though the defense did put in a lot about it, because he had a friend years ago who died of a gunshot wound, and it was they had to choose between or decide between accident or suicide. And he wanted, you know, this was suicide or homicide. He wanted more of the psychological aspect.
1: Well, and uh, you know, uh, I think I think the jury, frankly, is entitled to that. Yeah, because I think if if you look at the, picture, the blood the they are not going to tell you if it's an accident, or a suicide, or a homicide. Right. Because it. You said there's a small amount of backspatter, and he's got a small amount on his jacket. So could he have been right there firing the shot? Or could he have been standing within the range of the backspatter to receive it on his jacket? Maybe standing there reading poetry.
0: Right. You know? Right. It could have
1: been. That, that was their argument.
0: That was their argument. So, and-
1: I don't know. It, 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 blood stain pattern analysis is just one tool. It's just one tool in an investigation. It cannot always give you the exact answer. It may be equivocal in the answer that it gives you.
0: So there are crime scene reconstruction experts, and then people like you, blood stain pattern analysis expert. What? There's an overlap, right? I mean, do you reconstruct a yeah. crime scene, too? I'm sorry? Do you reconstruct crime scenes, too? I I do in some cases, yes. Okay. But are all crime scene reconstruction experts bloodstain experts, bloodstain pattern analysis experts, too?
1: No. No, Mm. they're not. Some of them are. Uh, A lot of them are not. Mm.
0: Okay. Yeah, I've Uh, I've seen a a reconstruction expert try to interpret the bloodstain evidence in a case, and I completely disagreed with his conclusion about the bloodstains. <laughs> well,
1: we could form a club. I watch people on television all the time. I completely disagree with, you know, yeah. when they're talking about stains. It's, 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 you know, I, it, I, I'm fairly smart, uh, and I've spent 35 years studying this stuff pretty hard. Uh, and for someone to think they can take a, a five day class and replicate that, I, I guess, you know. To sell selling
0: it a bit short. See, yeah. Well, first of all, you're very smart. I would not be talking to you. I've met you. I know. <laughs> I know you're very smart. I mean, you are one of the experts. I mean, you are an expert. And I, and this is what it troubles me that people can't hold themselves out as experts. Maybe a court won't necessarily find them an expert, but a TV show will, uh, and then come up with these opinions. Like you say, you disagree with people on TV, but that's a discussion for another day. Because I feel a lot of times that the public is hoodwinked by what they get on TV and they believe. What you're hearing on TV, and it's not always on the up and up. I mean, I, I used to catch errors all the time on the law on television, and it used to just frustrate me. So, but who? Well, and, and similar
1: similar feelings about about forensics as well. And, and and I also agree with you that the the public is being hoodwinked by a lot of
0: that. Yeah. Yeah, it's too bad, but that's not my objective on kerosene crime. I want okay. people, and I always tell my my members that whether they spend five minutes or five hours on my website, I want them to come away more informed, a little bit smarter, a little more educated. And I'm not hoodwinking anyone. So, um, who qualifies to be an expert? So, what like what what do courts require generally? Uh,
1: generally, uh, a five day course. Oh. The courts require only a five-day
0: course? I,
1: I have seen many people qualified with nothing but a basic course Oy. under their belt. And 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 I teach a basic class, and, and I tell them one of the last things on Friday is I have not given you the tools to be an expert. What I have given you are the tools to go and learn about this now, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To, to begin to learn. And, and what somebody does with it, I, I can't control. And who the court qualifies, I, I can't control. And, and I see a lot of judges say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to qualify it, and and, and and I'll give them an instruction that that uh, the weight of, a, of an expert's testimony is up to them and, and basically just wipe their hands of it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: It's a shame. I've, I've seen people that have been... Uh, kicked out of the American Academy, and and when they're reinstated, go back and qualify in court.
0: They get kicked out of the uh, which, uh, American Academy of Forensic uh, Science. Forensic science, yes. Uh, for uh, for what? They get kicked out. Uh, the- gosh, you know. I, I believe
1: it was unethical conduct, but I really am not sure.
0: Okay. So you're uh, kicked out because of something negative. Yeah, and... uh,
1: something negative that, and you know, an ethics committee at Academy has has made that determination, and it's come forth in, in front of this court as well. Uh, and the court has said, I've qualified this individual in the past, and so I will qualify them again. Nice. Now to me that's that's saying I'm going to protect all of my earlier decisions and all of my earlier cases and and let you testify again.
0: You're listening to the On Crime Podcast. It's time for a quick break. We'll be back shortly. Welcome back. You're listening to Karis on Crime. I'm your host, Beth Karis, and I'm talking to Paulette Sutton. She's an expert in bloodstain pattern analysis. She's been talking about how you interpret bloodstains at crime scenes and cases that she's been involved in. So let's talk about some specific cases. I mean, we've already talked um, a little bit about Spectre. Uh, More than a decade ago, there was a murder trial in North Carolina of a writer named Michael Peterson, and he was accused of killing his wife in December 2001 and making it look like an accident that she fell down the stairs. So I know you know the case, and and we'll talk about that. Forensic scientist Henry Lee testified for the defense, and he concluded, or at least his testimony, helped advance the defense that it was an accident. I think he said there was too much blood for it to be murder, something something like that. Um, and, and Court TV covered it. I wasn't covering it. I was covering the other Peterson case around the same time in and out of Modesto, California, for Scott Peterson. Oh,
1: yeah.
0: Um, yeah, because there were hearings at the time of this trial, and then Scott Peterson's trial took place after Peter, Michael Peterson's. And anyway, we used to say don't marry a Peterson, women out there. Scott Peterson, Michael <laughs> Peterson, and eventually in, in Illinois, Drew Peterson, the guy yeah, who yeah. was killing his wives. So, um, Doctor Lee illustrated because I remember seeing tape of this. And he illustrated the types of blood. Stains by um, red ink and using a dropper on a whiteboard, and then he put ketchup in his mouth and he spat at the board. And I just remember laughing, saying, "Oh gosh, what are you doing?" Because I didn't know that he was just illustrating. I thought he was trying to replicate the stains in that case. And do you, what? Do you know anything about that or anything about the Michael Peterson case? What can
1: I, you I, I do, I do know a little bit about the Michael Peterson case. I, I believe what Dr. Lee was doing when he when he did the ketchup thing was he was trying to uh, demonstrate how the spatters are created um, but it, it, it incidentally falls in line with saying and and she had blood in her mouth and, and blew it out onto that wall uh, the, the problem is she didn't have any blood in her
0: mouth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, ketchup is a yeah. totally different property. It's gonna travel at a different speed, it's a different consistency, everything, right? Well, yeah, oh, yeah. It it is different. But but here's the
1: thing, it's I don't know that I would have chosen ketchup, but I probably wouldn't want to put dye in my mouth either. Uh but it's 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 a liquid and uh the characteristics of the stains are going to be fairly similar, uh, but but here's the here's the thing.
0: There was no blood in her mouth. Oh, I see. In the victim's so, mouth. She had no blood yeah. in her mouth. Oh, oh no. Lord. And, and so here
1: here comes the part that we talked about earlier, Beth, where, where yeah, I'm going to look at the autopsy, and I'm going to, to look at what the injuries are, and I'm going to look at what the photographs show me. And in the photographs that were taken of Kathleen Peterson at the scene that day, there's no blood in her mouth, there's no blood in her nose. So that takes the possibility that this is expirated blood off the table. Mm. Even if a person has it, okay, I look at the autopsy report, and and uh, it's, it's, it's not uncommon that uh, perhaps an individual uh, in a in a violent assault has bitten their tongue. They're going to bleed a lot, right? hmm right. Now it's a question of, I'm, I'm bleeding a lot, am I blowing it out of my mouth? Or am I so, uh, maybe the person's already dead, or, or maybe they're unconscious, and all they're doing is swallowing the blood back down.
0: Right, right. And
1: the pathologist is going to find it in their stomach. Uh,
0: or lungs. It,
1: yeah, or lungs. Yeah, exactly. You, 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 you have to look at all of the information that's available. And, and simply because there is blood available in a mouth doesn't mean somebody's blowing it out.
0: So how was it that you happened to look at the autopsy report in the Michael Peterson case?
1: I, I look at the autopsy in all of the cases that I look
0: at. And so you were asked to look at it? Yes. Yes, I was. All right. So because we were talking before I started recording about that, and I want to know if you could, can you share anything? Oh. Who who reached out to you?
1: Uh, actually, I was, uh, uh, the defense contacted me first, and I basically told them that I, I couldn't uh, support that this was an accidental fall. And so I, I did not
0: testify. So they didn't retain you, you didn't write a report or anything, but you looked at the evidence they had.
1: That's, yes, I looked at the, the documentation, yes.
0: And uh, right, the documentation. Do you, uh, Can you share with us um, why you concluded that it wasn't an accident? Well, there there simply
1: was no evidence that it occurred anywhere along that staircase at all. Everything was uh, concentrated down at the bottom of the, the stairs itself. Uh, there was spatter radiating upward, uh, spatter going right, spatter going left. All of this looks like an assault. Uh, If someone falls down the stairs, I can believe they stood up, and if I remember correctly, in Peterson, uh, there was a a statement about blood is slick and and the person falls back down. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's certainly true, and that certainly does happen. Blood is very slick, and people that try to step in it will fall down often, but they don't do it like seven times. And that's a problem.
0: That's a problem. And was that, because I don't know all the details of that case, was that the explanation that she kept trying to stand up and kept falling? Yes, yes. And that's, and that that's, that's
1: what the, the biomechanical uh, expert uh, testified, that she stood up and, try, and kept falling down.
0: So what do you think happened?
1: Uh, <laughs> well, it, it certainly looks like the scene of an assault.
0: Yeah, and they exhumed a, a body that had been another staircase fall, a woman in his life from like 18 years earlier in Germany. Really. Right, yeah. right. So right. now he's facing retrial. Wow, interesting. Um, were you consulted in the Jody Arias case? I was not, no. But you know the case, right? I I do know, I
1: I don't know the specifics, uh, but I do know, you know, I'm like the rest of America. I was pretty much glued to the TV.
0: Yes, I was there. I was reporting on Ah. it. So I hope you were watching me. You probably were. Ah. I probably
1: was. I, I usually talk to you when I see you on television. <laughs> go back <home>. go.
0: <laughs> Excellent. I was going to say, what do you saying to me? Um, because we were the only ones. It was In Session. That, that was the new name for Court TV after uh, Turner changed our name in 2008. Uh, in Session and then um, HLN. And then I was covering it for HLN. So uh, that's the only place you could have seen it on television in long form, you know, in its entirety, uh-huh. not just snippets. But I often, during the trial and after, would tell, would would do you know live shots or give explanations that the blood tells a story. I mean, we we know it started in the shower, and you can kind of follow the blood, and and you know what happened. I mean, we kind of know from her statement too, and kind of in where he his throat was caught, you could see how he's on his hands and knees, and then he's standing, and then he's going down the hall, and his back that's been stabbed makes this big swipe on the wall and then there's a uh, like a partial palm print of hers because she cuts her finger it's her blood his blood mixed on the wall and then he collapses almost out the door and she splits his throat so it does tell a story
1: yeah i mean it's a, it's those those fragments of of
0: what's taking place those snippets right the little snippets right so i hope that if if you if you watched me tell the story that you weren't disagreeing with me i'm no expert but i sort of became an areas expert (laughs) trust me if i had disagreed i would have let you know now you mentioned there was an indiana case you said that um was pretty significant in terms of sort of bloodstain pattern analysis History and that's uh, a man in Indiana named David Cam. What can you tell us about that case? And did you work on it? Yes, I did.
1: Uh, David Cam was accused of killing his wife and two children uh, in the garage of his home, uh, and he was convicted of that twice. Um, the the bloodstain evidence was eight very small stains on the bottom left, uh, below the midsection and and above the hem of his T-shirt, and eight stains only. Uh, And those stains were the stains of his daughter. And so the opinions were put forth that those stains came from him shooting his daughter. Uh, And that was based on the size of those stains.
0: Okay. The problem
1: is uh, what we talked about earlier. You, you can't make that determination based only on the size of the stain. Uh, in my opinion, looking at those stains under a stereo microscope, a, a microscope where we don't have to be able to project light from underneath, like if we're looking at a glass slide, mm-hmm. but we're projecting light down onto a surface, so I can look at a a piece of clothing, or I can look at a pair of shoes and I can magnify those stains much more highly. Uh, those stains were almost entirely uh, limited to the upper part of the top of the weave of the fabric of David Kim's t-shirt. And had they been true spatter, there should have been some, it's a random event, there should have been some that was down in the lower parts of the weave of that shirt, not just restricted to the top weave of the fabric. Plus, you have to consider where the stain was, the lower left. And the theory was that he reached around through a bronco, I believe bronco, um uh, vehicle, an SUV vehicle, and shot his daughter, who was in the right rear seat of that vehicle.
0: Now, is right-handed? He did that, is he in the seat?
1: No, no, he is. Uh, they, they believe that the state argued that he shot his wife when she got out of the vehicle and came around to the passenger seat. And then the passenger door being open, he leans in and shoots his two children in the back seat. The daughter would have been in the right passenger seat of the rear, and the son was in the left
0: seat of the, the rear seat, facing facing the rear or facing the front. If you, you know when you say right uh, the, and left, the, the, the kids are facing the front. Right, but when you say they're right and, and left, are they right? and yeah,
1: sitting sitting in the in the vehicle, the the right would be the passenger side. Okay, the left would be the driver's
0: side. Okay. Yeah. And and, and, and the, the argument
1: is that he reaches around between the seats, between the, the the driver's seat and the front passenger seat and fires that shot. Well, if that's the case and, and she did create back spatter or she did create back from that shot, uh, because we can see it on other surfaces in the vehicle. Uh but it went up to the top of the vehicle And this is on the lower left.
0: And wouldn't the seat be intervening um, if he had done it that way so it couldn't have gotten on the lower part of his T-shirt, or am I envisioning it wrong? No, I think you're envisioning it uh, exactly right, that the seat would have been intervening. Okay. Uh,
1: And there were even um, contortions to try to get him into the right position. But I just don't put my left I don't put my my left waist and my right arm forward to fire a shot. Yeah, I just don't do that. But David Kim had another thing going. Well, in my opinion, all of those stains were transfer stains. Uh, he thought he saw his son breathe. Was was his statement? And so he took his son out of the vehicle and put him on the ground and tried to perform CPR. He did not try to move his daughter because, in his, according to his statement, he saw brain material, and he had been an Indiana state trooper. And, and he knew once he saw brain material coming from a wound that there was nothing he was going to be able to do. And he didn't try to move her, but I think he brushed against her in reaching for his son. And that's what created those stains on the bottom left of his shirt. Now, the other circumstance that that was going on with Cam was that 11 people put him at the church gymnasium playing basketball in the time frame that these murders occurred. 11 people that were adamant that he was at that gymnasium.
0: And two juries convicted him? And the and those alibi witnesses testified? Yeah. Yeah. And two juries convicted him? Holy Toledo. Yeah. And uh yeah.
1: and, and I think that you know, they convicted him the first time I, I believe because he had, had a lot of extramarital affairs. And you know juries convict people of being an asshole. Right. And and uh, you know, when you've had it about a little bit, they think you'll do the next, I guess.
0: Right.
1: Uh, the the bloodstain community is, is still divided over the KM case.
0: Really? Uh, you, I, yeah. I, from the way yeah. you're, you're talking, I assume you were a defense witness. I was. Because I always I think of you, you as more of a prosecution witness because I think I, I met you when you were waiting to testify. You never did testify for the state in Rainella, right? But
1: I, I did not in the trial that you were
0: at. Uh, that jury hung, and we
1: had a second trial, and I did testify.
0: Okay, so I don't want to get to, to right now. Okay, so I, don't, I want to go back to David Cam, though, but I, I just thought that you always testified I, for the prosecution. I, but you don't, right? No, you testify for both. No, I, I don't.
1: Uh, you know, part of being a university employee, uh, I even even inside of Shelby County, the, the county contracts were contracted for my services. The county agencies consist of the attorney general's offices, as far as the legal community goes, but they also uh, are the public defender's office, right? And because of that, I was my services were equally available to either one. Got it. And in my role at my academic appointment with the university, I also worked defense cases. And, you know, sometimes the, the forensic scientists forget that the legal system is an adversarial system, but the scientific community should not be.
0: I can't we don't. Do more. We don't
1: have a dog. That's right. We just don't have a dog in the fight. And, and here's the thing. If, if you retained me, let's, let's say you retained me as a state expert, if I didn't give you a, a straight evaluation of your case, I did you a disservice. Right, uh, and I just, I'm just not in the, I'm not in the business of lying to juries. I can't think of anything worse than being put into the prison for something you didn't do.
0: Oh, I know that is what I, 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 I say all the time. Uh, the idea that there are innocent people that we have taken in prison, locked up in cages, we've taken their liberty away, and they don't belong there, is you know. You keeps know what me Opie up did at night. At the same time. We
1: left this violent offender
0: out on the street to do it again. Yes, but it, it is the way our system is set up in protecting people's liberties. We say, you know, to, to make sure that we don't convict the innocent, we will we will let a guilty person go free. You know, all the exclusionary rules, right, um, right. Are, right. are sort of based on that, that philosophy. But mistakes have happened, uh, intentional, you know, I mean, Evidence the has been fabricated is, by, bad, by bad law enforcement people, and, you know, we've got innocent people in prison. Otherwise, we wouldn't need the innocence projects. Absolutely. Um, so, absolutely. So, so David Cam was um, tried a third time, and what happened? And on the third time, he was acquitted. Did you testify? I did not on the third one.
1: I testified on the second one.
0: Not the, uh, not the first on one, the, just the second.
1: Not the—let me think. No, I did not testify on the first one. I testified only on the second one. Mm -hmm. Uh, On the third one, uh, they were able to bring out touch DNA, and that was something that had not been tried in any of the previous cases. And touch DNA was able to show that another individual by the name of Charles Bonet uh, had actually touched the daughter and also the wife of David Cam. And ONE's argument at first was that he wasn't there and just totally not there at all. And initially it was brought up that, well, there's a t-shirt under, or sweatshirt underneath the little boy's body in on the garage floor, and when that sweatshirt was tested, the DNA in that sweatshirt belonged to Charles Bonet.
0: Whoa. Uh, was he a stranger also, to the family or somebody known to the family? No,
1: he was a stranger. Okay. Uh, Bonet's nickname that he had in prison, Backbone, was also written inside the back of uh, the, the neckband of that sweatshirt. Oh. As well. Oh. And then... Just a little more icing on the cake, Charles Bonet's palm print was found on the top of the Bronco right over the front passenger seat, as if someone put their hand up to brace on the side of the vehicle and leaned in in the car to shoot the two children
0: so you've got his and this is a stranger to the family so no reason why his palm print should be on the car his touch no. dna and a sweatshirt with his n- prison nickname on the inside of it underneath the little boy please yeah no uh, wonder the touch, camp I mean, the dna on the the sweatshirt and the name in the in the uh,
1: neckband did not come out until the second trial but in the second trial the the state divided the two cases. David Camp's trial was going on in one city and Charles Bonet's trial was going on in the other city and it was not they couldn't cross. Well
0: what was the other what what was vernet is that his name? What was he being tried for?
1: Bonnet was also being tried for the murders. And he Wait. was also he was also convicted. Wait a second.
0: So you had <laughs> David Cam and Bonet both being tried for the same mergers in two different jurisdictions. Yes. Oh, yeah. And and
1: uh, um, the 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 uh, conspiracy charge was dropped on David Cam in the middle of the trial. The conspiracy to commit murder in collusion with Charles Bonet.
0: That charge was dropped in the middle of the trial. Okay, so if he wasn't. So, if there was no conspiracy to commit murder, that mean and he was convicted, that means he did it himself. Right. And Bonet did it himself. You know, two different right. people killing the same victims, and they have no connection to each other. right.. Oy. And this was the second trial for cam. Did that it get- was the second that was the second trial. Oy. in the third trial is when the touch DNA came out.
1: And they also brought Bonet in in to testify.
0: To say what? That he did
1: it? Uh, Bonet says no. I, you know, th- th- Here's the deal. I sold David Cam the gun. And I'm there at the house when the wife drives up with the two children and Cam snatches the gun away from me, runs up, I hear these pop, pop, pops. And then he comes out to shoot me. But the gun jams when he goes to shoot me. And so... He runs in the house, and I assume he's going in the house to find another gun to shoot me with. But, hey, I'm curious, so I go in to peek and see what he's done inside of this vehicle, and that must be when my handprint got onto the side of the Bronco.
0: Ooh, that's a little convenient story. <laughs> oh,
1: my God. I've never, I've never been in that situation, but I'm thinking if I thought somebody was going after another gun, I would not be going to check. But I would I, be going away.
0: Exactly, I'd be running away. But I do find it interesting that the, your community, the bloodstain uh, pattern analysis community, is split on the David Cam case.
1: Yeah, it, it is interesting. It is, and 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 that's uh, led to part of our problems. About uh, is this an art or is it science?
0: Right. I don't even know if I asked you that question, but that was one of my questions. Did I ask you? <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, we talked about it before, but, uh, you know, I, I think you can practice it
1: either way. Uh, in my opinion, if you practice it correctly, you practice it as a science, and you utilize the scientific method to reach a conclusion. And, and you know what? We keep talking about reaching a conclusion. My conclusion may be that I can't tell you. Right. Maybe I can't tell you what happened, or maybe I can't tell you between two possible explanations right. of what created this. That may be the final conclusion that I reach. So conclusion is not always the concrete answer that I think juries uh, believe that we're going to come to. But uh, if, to me, if I, if I only look at, let's say, the size of this thing, and that's all I take into consideration, uh, then I'm practicing this, this as an art, and I'm, I'm going to come to some erroneous decisions mm. by doing that. Right. Or if I utilize a scientific method and, and practice it like we've been talking about, okay, here's what my stain looks like, and I know from all the studies that I've done and, and the patterns that I know, the characteristics, then I then I know that I'm in this category. Maybe I'm in the category that we talked about earlier. Is it gunshot? Is it fly specs? Is it expirated blood? Now I've got to go and do some research. Look at the things that, uh, the, the, the autopsy. Look at the initial crime scene photographs of the body. Look at where these stains are, are located. What do the stains look like? Before I can reach the decision, as to what created those things. And if you utilize the scientific method, I believe it is a science. I also believe that that the answer that science is restricted to sometimes is, I don't know. I can practice it as a science and still not be able to give you an exact answer.
0: That's right. So let me ask you, I just have a a handful more questions um, about Raynella Doss at Leith. When when you did testify, Mm what did you say? What was your conclusion? Uh, That the position, uh, David Leith was found in
1: his bed with a a gunshot uh, just a little bit left of the bridge of his nose. Uh, And... It was fired at a distance. I can't remember the exact distance, but maybe 12 to 18 inches, we'll say, uh, away. But the Bloodstains told us that he had to have been raised up on one arm while firing the shot and fall back into a position that would have his pillow cradled between his shoulder and his chin. Uh, It was quite a contortion to be able to fire that shot on his own.
0: So you were a prosecution witness? Yes. Saying this was no accident, he didn't kill himself? Right.
1: No accident, not a suicide.
0: Yeah. And her first husband, uh, the former uh, prosecutor in that county in Knoxville, also died under questionable—I know he was sick, but he died under— Huh. Questionable circumstances. It, some believe that she killed him too, but he, when he was trampled by the cattle.
1: Right. That was, it was ruled accurate. agricultural
0: act. Yeah, he's like in a wheelchair in the field. Uh, in, in, you know, I, I don't think there was a wheelchair, but yeah, I thought he, she field. wheeled him out went, there, or maybe he
1: uh, went to he went to feed his cows one last time. Okay. Was, was my he understanding. Trained.
0: Okay. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> the story. Well, and I think he's buried on the property, and it's I can't like he assume is. him. He and, is. I, so, and then um, you had mentioned to me before I was recording, actually, when I called you a week or so ago, that you were recently consulted um, by the Innocence Project in Ohio on a case. Yeah, and, and yes, revealed I was. something kind of startling about a crime lab there and a technician. Can you share that? Uh, well,
1: I can. I can only tell you what I. have basically what I read in the newspaper about the situation uh, at that crime lab. Um, But there was uh, some problems with one of the analysts, uh, personnel issues uh, inside of the crime lab. Uh, And that was the analyst that had looked at this case as well. Uh, And the judge ruled on appeal that, uh, because the defense was not made aware of these personnel issues, uh, that it was a Brady violation. And as a result, the conviction was overturned.
0: And did these personnel issues have anything to do with how this lab technician interpreted blood stain pattern analysis, or was that or was this person in a different field?
1: Uh, it was it was a blood stain pattern uh, call that was made, uh, but the problems were were on a personnel level.
0: I see. Okay. Um, And that's an ongoing matter, right? Yes. Okay. So you... um, I don't know if you were too young or what you were doing at the time, but in 1977, in August 1977, when Elvis Presley died, were you in Tennessee? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't let a forensic person from Tennessee get away without asking that question. Were you in Tennessee? Guilty. L- 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 yeah? Well, do you know anything yeah. about it? Uh, he said... <laughs> <laughs> but I met I mean I met the defense attorney Dan Warwick years ago and he was an ME investigator when Elvis died and he told me that his notes were stolen out of his car I mean people were just after him because they wanted to know he was at, he was at Elvis's autopsy and his notes were stolen but he was able to sort of recreate I mean he remembered things but his notes were stolen out of his car but he was at the autopsy were you doing forensic stuff at that time or yeah. Oh yes, yeah, I was. Anything yeah. on anything on Elvis? I was. I was, I was much younger then. Yeah, uh, <laughs> we all were. <laughs> <laughs> I had just arrived in Costa Rica. I was on my way to spend a semester in Bogota, Colombia, and I was. I was in college, and I had just arrived in Costa Rica. It was August 1977, and I was like, "Wow, big news in the United States!" Actually, it was worldwide news, but um, I was in Costa Rica for a month. So, uh, did did you have anything to do with this? His, I, the investigation.
1: Well, I, I, I did, uh, I, I didn't have anything to do with, with ruling the cause of death other than I, I know when, when we all sat down and talked about uh, the lab results, the problem with the Elvis ruling was there were not enough drugs, even collectively with what he had to say that that's what caused his death. And if that's the case, then you have to have a fallback uh, answer. I mean, there has to be something else. But obviously, he's dead, and I guarantee you that.
0: He is dead. So what was the fallback? He had a heart attack? The, the, I mean... the
1: fallback is the cardiac arrhythmia, yeah, a yeah. heart attack. This is this is a man that had a lot of ongoing health issues, uh, and you know, he he took a lot of drugs. I think we all concede see that. But he had been doing it for a long time, and you know, the, the simple solution would have been to rule him as an overdose. Uh, but we didn't take the simple the simple avenue, uh, and there was, frankly, nothing else that would have led to his death. But I thought it's his- not. It's this just not uncommon uh, for people in, in that shape uh, to have heart attacks while they're sitting on the toilet. It, it's just not uncommon. But this is I, not really a glorious way to go.
0: No, but, rather humiliating. Know? But, you know, <laughs> Dan, Dan Warwick told me, I mean, he was kind of he was fairly open um, about the autopsy. Were you present for the autopsy? No. Okay. No. He said that uh, his um, his intestines were caked like an inch thick with like white stuff. Like just maybe buildup of the residue from drugs. I don't know. It's just like white stuff, like this chalky white stuff. Just caked the lining of his like his intestines, his colon, his intestines, whatever. I don't know if it was upper or lower intestines.
1: I I don't think I've ever heard of anything like that.
0: Okay, well, that's what he said.
1: And and certainly not. uh,
0: Wow, an inch
1: thick. This is three hundred and sixty degree organ here.
0: That's an inch thick. You're right. That's what he. I mean, he said. uh, That's my recollection. And you know. Yeah, and and I'm I'm
1: not disputing
0: it. I wasn't there for the
1: autopsy. We were we were locked down in the laboratory. so that we were available to do, you know, what what we did. Um, I, I I've never heard that, Beth. I I simply don't.
0: I I don't know. Okay, well, I I mean, I'm not looking at notes. I'm only going by memory, so I I just want to put mm-hmm. a qualifier on this for anybody who's listening. Yeah, I don't that, know. It could be a quarter of an maybe said a quarter of an inch, and I'm remembering an inch. So it just that it was code. There was like a layer of thick like white something. Coating his um his intestines. You know, I've, I've
1: seen people, but that would mean it had to have gone through his stomach and still been like in a white. i I've, I've seen obviously cases of people that had uh, undigested pills in their stomach, mm-hmm. uh, partially digested pills in their stomach. Uh, you know, I've, I've even. In cases when we could take them out and look at the markings on them and identify what they were, mm.
0: uh,
1: but I don't—I've never heard of that in the intestines. But uh, again, I wasn't there. Yeah, well, see, I, you know, my job was over in the lab, mm. and uh, I mean, I remember when we heard about that, that Elvis was dead, and, and we were told to, to stand by and you know, stay home tonight so that we can reach you. Of course, that was in the days before we had cell phones. Right, right. Um, And um, he was not moved into our morgue because at that time you had to go down a a long alley to get down there, and, and the streets, the major arteries of Memphis were already clogged with people. And they were afraid to take the body down there because of the, the nightmare of trying to get him back out. And uh-huh. he already was at Baptist Hospital, and that's uh, the morgue there was utilized. So it wasn't in our facility, our building proper.
0: And so that's where the autopsy was done at that morgue, the hospital. At, at the hospital morgue, yes. I uh-huh. see. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. So it's been uh, a very enlightening hour. We've talked more than an hour, Paulette, and I told you that it's, these are okay. typically 30 minutes, but they so easily go double time. And I really appreciate your taking the time uh, this afternoon to talk to me. Well, sure. So, and sure. I want... I'll enjoy talking to you. I learned something. Oh, great. And I definitely will stay in touch. And now an update. Since I did this interview with Paulette Sutton in July 2016, a case we talked about, Michael Peterson, who was charged with murder for throwing his wife Kathleen down the stairs and killing her in 2001 in North Carolina. while well, he was facing a retrial, but that case is over now. He took a plea to manslaughter. He didn't have to serve any more time because he's done so much time already in prison. And it was called an Alfred plea, meaning he didn't have to admit to doing anything wrong. It is a conviction, but he did admit that the prosecution had enough evidence to convict him. And so that wraps up another episode of Karis on Crime. I'm your host, Beth Karis. As always, I welcome your feedback, so feel free to share your questions and ideas with me. Post them in the forum on karisoncrime.com if you're a member, or on social media. My Twitter handles, I have two Twitter pages, are at Beth Karis and at Karis on Crime. You can also find me on Facebook on the page with my name, Beth Karis. Till the next time, be well.